Welcome back to the art and science of sound healing with your host Thomas or Anderson recording in my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by thick, lush, green summer forests and just countless waterfalls in every direction and lots of happy plants and animals and right now lots of ripe blackberries and also ripe wild blueberries, which is pretty exciting. It's a good place to be, a good time to be here. It's been quite some time since I've recorded an episode of this, and I thought that a really good sort of impetus to do so was to invite a couple of my favorite people, a couple really inspiring teachers and sort of leaders and performers and guides and cohorts in the sort of mystical sound healing kind of world. Today we have special guests Mitch Nur and Mike Tamburo. So welcome Mitch and Mike. Hello Thomas. Thank you for having me Thomas. It's good to see you again. (laughs) Good to see you again. It hasn't been long. So Mike was actually a guest already on this show. Uh, I don't remember which episode number it is, but you can look back and I think it's perhaps like a three-hour episode or something. And it's a really fantastic episode. And um, in those three hours or however long it was, we definitely barely scratched the the surface and uh, ended it with the feeling that we needed needed to do it again soon. So hopefully we will do that. And then Mitch hasn't been on the show yet. This is his first time on here. So to kick it off, I'll actually ask Mitch to tell a little bit about himself um, rather than reading a bio. I'll just say one thing um, is that a lot of people refer to him as the Indiana Jones of sound healing. And The more time I spend with him, and we're working on a number of projects together, the more I find that to be a really appropriate title, and even the hat he wears. (laughs) He needs a leather jacket and a whip, though. But um, Basically, that's the only thing missing. So anyway, to kick it off, Mitch, could you just tell us whatever you like about your background and um, what you do and who you are and so forth. Well, uh, thanks for that uh, introduction there. Um, Actually, I think the person who said the Indiana Jones of sound healing was at an international sound healing conference. And uh, it was one of the speakers and I was uh, like a moderator like you today, and I was sort of keeping all these different uh, artists and philosophers from all around the world together. So, uh, and all of them sort of knew me from my travels to their countries. So I think it, that was the first time and it has stuck ever since. And uh, it probably does 
describe me fairly well because my interest in indigenous music and the effects of rituals that have music and sound in them always sort of inspired me from a very young age where I got addicted to watching Smithsonian Institute documentaries in far-off lands. I don't know why, but I did. And ever since then, I've sort of pursued that um, direction. And in doing so, I've amassed uh, uh, a very interesting uh, personal kind of uh, musical instrument or sound tools uh, collection, uh, pretty much focused on you know old pieces uh, from archaeological sites, very early kind of sound uh, devices. I mean, reportedly the oldest, one of the oldest instruments in the world, outside of beating, pounding your chest or banging on rocks was what they called the musical bow. You taking just a small creeper vine and bending it over a green stick and they would play it and mimic animals. So it was actually something they used for hunting and survival and they got into it. Um, there's interesting theories. I trace back sound healing to like 14,000 years because there's physical evidence showing it. Um, I always like to see evidence or touch evidence. <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm actually smelling it and tasting it. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where like, you know, physical evidence is very revealing because now you actually can like touch it and you can feel the energy in it. And, um, and I have some very old pieces. Many are just simply private. I've never even shown them or talked about them because I'm not up to speed on actually the ritual that it's in. And I don't want to do a disservice to the people that it originated from. I try to be very, conscious of those kind of things because I have lived in like what people would call fifth world nations where I remember I pulled out metal utensils out of my knapsack and the people that I was with had never seen metal and that was in the 1970s and mm -hmm. I was shocked that they didn't know what this substance was they didn't even have a word for it you know and I thought to myself I must be in the neolithic age <laughs> but there are there are references and I'm, I'm and i've been meaning to look at this deeper that the bushmen of africa their songs may have been the beginning and that's according to um academics on this that puts them back seventy thousand years because they've had these songs forever. You know, it's like the Aborigines. You know, I studied the Aborigines when I was introduced to the didgeridoo long before it became the popular trance kind of instrument that it is today. And um, I was at a music conference once and they had a didgeridoo player, people in from Australia. And I had never been like face to face with one before. And I didn't even know anybody in America that had one. 
And here they were standing in front of me, and I was like absolutely, totally amazed. I had an epiphany, like I do a lot of these kind of instruments that have harmonics about them. So, you know, this journey into sound started at a very long age. I mean, I think I was at six, seven, or eight universities, sometimes coming back twice, never really finishing, going off on another rabbit wormhole somewhere on a theory that I had. Um, you know, <laughs> I've had some crazy theories over the over over time about how certain instruments may have moved around or who introduced the rattle first. You know, uh, you know these kind of things are very important in our in our evolution. But one of my focuses has been, and I think this is probably one of the sort of definitions behind my name is that I normally don't speak about something until I've got a bag full of truth about it. And I know that a lot of people go out on a limb early because the excitement of discovering something, they can't wait to show it because they want to be the first to show it to everybody, right? I mean, I just told you I've got instruments that haven't even shown anybody. <laughs> I, I'm not thinking that way when I, when I talk about an instrument. So, you know... Um, you know, there's an instrument that I'm pretty much, I think, about the only teacher of, and I only teach it uh, rarely. I was actually going to teach it this year um, because I'm hopeful that people can understand its use. Um, it's one of the nearly one of the oldest in my collection, even though one that I have is not, I'm going to say, 15,000 years old. OK, but it's old. But it's not as old as some other kind of things that I've collected over time or, or bartered with uh, over time to get a better understanding of what these people were thinking about when they were interreacting with the sound. There's always this interaction. Sometimes the interaction is one of like grief or sorrow or happiness, or you actually have an experience where it was someplace in your body. Surely it went to some place in your mind, and maybe you're deeply affected by it. And I think that many of us, especially in this world of sound and music and healing and therapy or whatever you want to call it, philosophy, it's an intimate world in, in many cases for a lot of people. So I, I, I'd like to take this, the research seriously. I only come forward when I know that I can like speak about it with authority, especially when it involves other cultures. I do not like to speak for someone in another culture. I've been, I've been accused over my life of like, who are you? You know, you don't even belong in that part of the world. You know, how do you know this? Right. And like, I'll say, because I was either there studying it or somebody came to me to give it to me for some reason. You know, I've been lucky, you know, in that in that regard. You know, I've had a few people say to me, I've been waiting for you to show up. <laughs> I got something. I got a sound I want to I got to share to you. I, I had a dream once and I knew that there would be somebody who would understand it. I mean, you know, my life has definitely been interesting. Uh, you know, that's for sure. But I think that, well, the one thing I can say is it has been fun. <laughs> I've had a lot of fun here doing this. I've, I've met remarkable people in countries or in places. I can, I'm not even sure if I can know how to pronounce it. I've had my life saved numerous times 
thousands of miles away from home with, with a fever that went off the thermometer. And they were like reading the last rites over me. You know, so like, I mean, it's, you know, all I can say is, well, one, I've been treated better outside the country than in. And I think that that's a strong statement that everybody can understand right now in our history. Okay. And I think about those people. I think about them looking at us right now in this kind of history and them saying to themselves, God, I wonder what ever happened to Mitch. <laughs> because almost everybody that I met in other countries, I became part of their families. And uh, because they didn't ask them for anything. You know, it was never like, you got to tell me this. I've always said, only share with me what you feel is comfortable. I'm not here to be the inquisitor. If you want to share what you know, I hope that you can trust me with it and that I will do my best to preserve it in its natural state. Not using it as a tool for marketing or hyping it with my name or, you know, anything of those sorts. You know, a lot of this goes on, okay? And all I can say is, is I once was giving a talk and I had a sobering moment. I was revealing something about the psychoactive properties of bronze. And it was involving my research along the Trans-Himalayan Traverse, meaning from one end of the Himalayas to the next. I mean, they, they start in Southeast Asia and they end up over in the Mideast. You just look at the map. The mountains just go cut across like a spinal column across the world right there. And there's all these deep, there's deep mountain valleys. And, and I learned this in Nepal the first time. Each valley is its own civilization. It's a different people. You go over, you're in the next valley. Well, they're not, they could be speaking a different language. They're now got, they have a different name. They're not the same ethnic group. And now you got to reorientate yourself. And now you got to learn it all over again. And then you leave two days later and you're right back in there again. So anyway, there's so many places that are hidden all over the world. I'm investigating one now. I actually have people interested in financing this trip in there because they didn't know it existed. But anyway, <clears throat> the, I was giving this talk and I thought that this information would be safe to talk about in public. Okay. And I talked about sort of how ancient rituals were performed. And then there was the introduction of something made of bronze into the ritual. Why is it always bronze is my, was the question I was asking at the time. And that's what made me do the study. And then I started to find all these little different stories all over the place where they didn't want to talk about it. It was secret. It was part of their, their oral traditions, you know. And I started to think to myself, is there something that we don't know about metal, especially when it's used for sound, that we've totally overlooked in the West, that we don't get it at all. We're looking in the opposite direction because these people are talking about attributes and substances with the sound as though this is a recipe with directions. You know, I mean, you know, I, anyway. So I, 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 <laughs> I talk about bronze and I talked about how it could change things, okay? And I alluded to a couple things. I didn't go into detail, and then I just announced that there would be a break, okay?
So I told everybody to take a break, and I'm sitting there, and I'm drinking a little glass of water, and a woman in a burqa comes up to me. And she introduces herself to me. And, um, you know, she was of a strict uh, Muslim sect, could not touch men, really couldn't really look me in the eyes. Okay. So anyway, and, you know, she said, I can't, I'm an unwed um, woman. I can't have any kind of contact. And I said, but I have to ask you a question. And I said, okay, listen, whatever protocol I have to follow, just tell me what it is. But, you know, so when she, she said to me, we were particularly, and she pointed to the back of the room, and I could see others in the back all wearing burkas. <laughs> you know, this is right after, like, 9-11, <laughs> right? I'm thinking to myself, now what have I done? Have I, like, provoked the ire of the Muslim world suddenly with this talk about old world bronzes? But anyway, she says, I need to know how you know this. And I mean, she looked at me like there was two knives being held in each hand. How is it did you know this? And I started to say, to, to say how I knew this, when she said, my grandmother says that you should be taken out into the alley and whipped like a dog and executed for revealing these secrets. <laughs> now, you can imagine how wide my eyes got. And then she said, my mother says whipping you like a dog would be enough. <laughs> now, <laughs> I didn't think that I had actually given away anything, but I had, okay? I had actually mentioned a few tidbits. I realized as I was quickly thinking, how do I make an amend for this, right? And I basically said, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, sometimes, I mean, you never know what you're going to say, but I just said, well, what do you think? And she said to me, I think you've met someone who knows or you would not know this. You do not discover this by accident. I told my mother and her mother that someone must have told you this and felt confident in your trust. And I said, I've had numerous people give me this information. And I never thought it would be offensive in sort of the general state that I was using it today where I was only sort of hinting at it, okay? To give people a different appreciation for when you're simply in its presence. I mean, ever since I had that confrontation, every time I see bronze, it doesn't matter what it is, I think of that. <laughs> I think of somebody looking at me going like, don't you learn something about it and tell somebody without permission. <laughs> but this is what I told her. I told her, that if we didn't share, if she didn't tell me what was upsetting her, and I wasn't telling her what was upsetting me, 
And I felt that I didn't need to tell her the truth about something, or she felt that she didn't have to tell me the truth about something, that we were in two parallel different worlds, that there will never be the fellowship of humanity if we keep pointing out the differences and then focusing on that and, and creating separation. All right? This woman was from the Kushan Valley. You find a map where Hunza is, and you'll get an idea of where this woman was from. She was in the next valley over from Hunza, where, you know, where these people are living to be 125 years old, and, you know, they're not on TikTok. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, you know, so these are deep valleys in some of these cases around Hunza. Okay, where they've been isolated. I mean, like the Mongols didn't even get in there to like war on them or the or the Scythians. You know, they were well guarded over in that part of, of the world. But, you know, I really think that, you know, that their in, integrity cannot be stressed enough, Thomas, is that we have, you know, it's like I go back and I say that, you know, if we look at Al-Farabi, the great a philosopher who was compared to Aristotle, by the way, the Greeks just figured he was the rein reincarnation of him, and we don't even study him, okay? But the Greeks found it important enough to name basically him after Aristotle, saying he was rivaling him in his uh, in his uh, in his studies and in his work. Is that teachers have a responsibility to make sure? Nothing enters our craft that would pollute it. Now, he said that in the 10th century, 900 and something. But he was only repeating what many others have also said throughout history. He was only repeating the Greeks, okay? Is that as teachers, we need to guard against misinformation that's coming in, things that would change the art that we love so much, right? I mean, look how much has changed in the world. But when it comes to things like, like what Farabi is talking about here, where it, the emphasis is on the instructor, that the instructor needs to come from a place where he has not allowed misinformation, wrong view, wrong idea to get in there for some kind of personal attainment. It's, it's either the truth or it's not. <laughs> so, you know, Farabi said, you know, this is what a teacher has to do. And the last thing I want to remind him about is he's also a guardian. He's a guardian to make sure that nothing gets in there and changes it to the worse, that it gets watered down or the important things now start to get overlooked. Okay, I mean, the best teachings have always been the ones that have been orally passed from one to the other, because you're looking at the person when they tell you this, <laughs> and they're looking back, <laughs> and, and, there, and there can never really be anything that like will stick on you like glue, that when the download's coming and you're looking into the eyes and hearing the voice of the person tell you this, you know, it's more than a stain. It's a perfume that you walk around with the rest of your life. You can never wash it off because you can never forget it. It's like every cell in your body rejoices because it knows 
that it is true. And that's always a good feeling because then you're always happy. <laughs> There's never any kind of suspicion about anything. You're never asking too many questions that your mind loves to say and answer and go back and forth. When you got the truth, the dialogue stops. <laughs> you don't ask any more questions. You don't go on that journey of what, if, when, where, who, when. You know what I mean? I mean, it, all in a, in a minute. You know, you just go, truth. I just need to breathe now. That's all I need. That's all I need to do. Keep my heart running and look out upon this glorious world that we live in. <laughs> For the... <laughs> At least that's the way I've always sort of looked at it. Like I said, it definitely is full of some of the most interesting, remarkable people that I've ever met in my life. And I'll tell you, children have taught me precious memories and little secrets all over this world. You know, you watch how children behave in other countries. They, they behave so much differently than, than we do. You know, you, 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 if you can't learn from everything that you see, you know, you're depriving yourself of this human experience that is unlimited, for goodness sakes. The, the human experience is unlimited. And, you know, when we're using sound, you know, that's the playing field that we're on. We're on a playing field where the consciousness of the person that's, in, you know, engaged in this has been influenced by every conception and every experience in their life. You never know what's going to come up. I remember I was in a class in front of some sound healers once, and I said, a lot of times it's like cracking the jack-in-the-box. Whether it's a singing bowl or a gong or a didgeridoo, but it's a dun -dun 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 -dun. pop goes the weasel. Suddenly you have something that jumps out of the person that you never expected. And you only need one time for that to happen when you don't have the experience to really where you question yourself right you question what the heck am i you know and people are questioning you that's why it's important to like i said only come out when you got the facts <laughs> all right i'm coming back to you there thomas <clears throat> all right <clears throat> you shared so many things that i would like to touch on further although uh this is a gonna be a slightly shorter than typical episode very often this is a pretty long episode podcast but this one we're keeping it a little tighter because of some time constraints of our guests but yeah so many things uh you mentioned that i would like to explore further one thing that I find really interesting is a lot of parallels with my life. Um, I'm also an adventurer. I, I, I inherited that from my father who inherited it from his mother. And um, I come from a family where at least some of us are world adventurers and have constantly been in strange, unusual situations. And I've traveled around the world seeking out teachers, seeking out uh, healers and masters and trying to get into a situation where they might bestow something upon me that I could then share with others. 
And it's interesting hearing your stories because, yes, yeah, so many of them sound like a story I might tell. And um, it's amazing to find somebody who has more of those stories because <laughs> usually I'm the one who has the most of them. And to find somebody who has way more of them than, than I is a, a treat. And an well, you know what they say around my family? They call me the big fish. Mm. So if you've ever seen that movie, The Big Fish, oh, yeah. my wife says to people, you wait until he dies and we see the people who shows up at his funeral to be like the movie, The Big Fish. Yeah. And I always sort of, and I always sort of laugh about that. I, I also really liked a few number of quotations. I like you said, integrity cannot be stressed enough. Part of the reason this podcast exists and the Facebook group that kind of goes along with the same name is really to help bring in or restore integrity in the field of sound healing, which is unfortunately, despite uh, what a lot of people seem to think, is actually something really needed, um, this, particularly in the context of sharing information. There's a lot of lack of integrity in information sharing. And that led to, leads to what you were talking about from Al-Farabi, uh, the responsibility of teachers to protect our crafts from pollution and from misinformation. Really, really appreciate that. And that's another sort of theme of the reason the effort has gone into this show and a lot of the things I've done. Um, and I really liked your image of the joy of being perfumed with the truth. I, I like that. I have uh, um, on very blessed days felt such a thing. And um, also learning from children. And uh, I like the jack-in-the-box image too. That's, that's a really great way of talking about some of these experiences people have in sound healing. You're, uh, the, what the result is, is very often sudden and unexpected. Kind of like waking up from a, a dream, you know? It's nothing like the dream. It's like, pop! Totally different thing. So uh, I'm going to change directions and, and turn the attention to Mike Timburo. Um, Mike's already been a guest as I mentioned on this show, and hopefully all of you, if you haven't watched or listened to that, hopefully you'll go back and listen to that most excellent interview or uh, conversation. But I want to ask Mike about his personal evolution with sound. He's gone through a lot of uh, sort of uh, um, changes in his relationship with sound and uh, at some times he was, you know, uh, a kundalini yoga yogi and teacher and of kundalini yoga. He was a punk rocker. He was a, um, uh, did sound therapy and then changed it to just being music or something. I don't know. I'd rather let him tell about it. But Mike, if you could tell about your evolution of your relationship with sound and then particularly in the context of sound healing. Uh, appreciate hearing about that because it's an exciting and inspiring adventure. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it's funny because, you know, different days I look at, at my evolution in, in different ways. And, and uh, you know, some days I, I look at it as this process of becoming less arrogant. <laughs> and, uh, and then other days I, I, I can look at it in, in, in a different way uh, where I can actually really say that, you know, there's a lot of evolution going on. Um, for me, for some reason, it was important to actually try to push boundaries and try to go um, beyond traditions. And um, I've been very aware of, um, I guess, you know, where music's place is in time right now. And, 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 and I've considered a lot in terms of how recordings have uh, affected the climate of how we understand music and, and then, you know, how, how performance changes. But, you know, I've very much been interested in, uh, you know, what's happening now, what's happening in my lifetime. And then also what, what happened just before I was born. Um, so, you know, that there, there are some, some interesting threads that are happening in the 20th century, you know, just having electricity um, made so many sounds available to us. And I think that that has been overall, you know, the the main thread in my work is, you know, what can I do with this sound, even beyond the tradition of how the instrument would normally be used. Uh, and often what it did would push me to another instrument. For instance, I used to play mallets on my acoustic guitar. And... Uh, and there are only six strings, there are limitations, you know, if they sounded good, I could change notes, but that led me to the hammer dulcimer. Because I realized that I like to, you know, strike mallets on strings. I, I wouldn't have had done that had I played the guitar in, you know, the normal fashion. But I can also play the guitar in the normal fashion. Um, so, you know, there's just always been a lot of experimentation and a lot of play and, uh, you know, and I think that I have kind of like an equal amount of reverence and irreverence. Uh, and, and that goes towards my, my own career <laughs> and my own, you know, my own work as well. Um, I think that, uh, you know, for, for me, it's very interesting how people have used music and, uh, a lot of my understanding of that has come, you know, simply through the fact that I could listen to recordings. Um, I mean, I've traveled to every state in the U.S., but and I've been to India and Bulgaria and, and Canada, but I haven't traveled, um, you know, much of the world yet. Although I spent most of my life traveling, <laughs> um, but what, it, what I've had access to has been, uh, you know, these recordings, these records. And, uh, and now also videos where I could listen to how different people were expressing themselves with music. I could, um, you know, see that there were a lot of different reasons for making music and that they were all really valid um, and, and that they were all modes of, of communication and, and all modes of, of expression. Um, and then I think also, you know, just in terms of how I've learned and understand music and how I work with sound, uh, you know, there are some elements where I was able to 
understand what was going on and, and mimic it in some way or, or, you know, take a sound that I was hearing on one instrument and apply it on another. Um, but then there, there were times where I just didn't know what the heck was going on. And it was like, I could just start almost like there was no, you know, culture behind the instrument at all or something like that. As far as my mind was concerned, you know, approaching it, I didn't really have like a context all the time. Uh, like the Shahi Baja, for instance, which is a, like a, it's an Indian instrument that's electric and it has, uh, two strings that are, are, uh, pushed down by what looks like typewriter keys, then it has a bunch of open strings. So this is an, an, an old instrument, I mean, sort of based off of the bubble trunk, but, uh, but, you know, the, as far as I was concerned, there were no rules. You know, it was like, here's just this thing, and, and, and how I figure out to play it is, you know, adding to the culture of that. Um, I had a, a huge shift whenever I actually began to understand um, my place in culture, and it's happened a few times because I've, I've run record labels over the years, and, and you know, and, and I've been involved in different scenes. Um, but there was something, you know, that happened in the sound world where, um, you know, for me it became very important that I start talking about people like Pauline Oliveros. I mean, which you know, kind of, it's it's obvious, you know, if you're talking about the sound world, that you're talking about somebody like Pauline Oliveros. Uh, but in sound healing, there weren't many people that were, you know, coming from that end of the world, that end of the spectrum, where they were talking about John Cage, Pauline Alaveros, Alvin Lucier, um, people who were doing, like, you know, true experiments with sound. Uh, and just recently, and I mean, pa Pauline just died a few years ago. And, and uh, you know, I, I kind of wanted to bring together these worlds of what I had learned through experimental music and then what I had learned through devotional music and, uh, and, 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 you know, what I had learned through punk rock and, and, and everything that, uh, you know, that there, there, that it, it, there's limitless possibilities. And, and a lot of times what happens, in, you know, for me, especially with, with sound therapy and also very much with Kundalini Yoga, was just, you know, like you're sort of weighted down by unnecessary rules, which are sort of these, like, cautionary tales, like, don't do this, or, or this is going to happen. And, uh, you know, the, the, some of the gong lessons I got early on, I mean, like, it was just like a, a list of, like, don'ts. <laughs> I mean, like, there were so many rules, I can't believe they let you touch the instrument. <laughs> you know, it was like sort of this this other object, um, I, I think that I'm fortunate because I've had a life of experience with music <clears throat> and, 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 and what comes along with that is being with people and, and being with listeners and, uh, and, you know, touching people, you know, and, and, and I, I think that there are many ways to you know, touch the mind or, or, or touch the heart. And, uh, you know, I, th I think my role as a facilitator is, is really to, you know, open up that space for, you know, whoever is, whoever I'm talking with, um, that, you know, even though there's all of this 
you know, weight of, of, of different types of music that have already existed, there, there are still new possibilities for music. And, uh, you know, often you're in the middle of creating something that in the future is, is something that people look back on and go like, wow, that was, you know, inspiring. You know, that changed my approach towards music. I've met a lot of people who have done that for me. And, and I've seen a lot of performances where, you know, suddenly my my concept of what music could be was just cracked wide open. And uh, so I, I think that's been really important for me. Um, you know, I, I, I'm currently, you know, in the, in the midst of trying to create a very large percussion uh, experience. Uh, and I'm looking at, you know, different wood blocks around the world and different types of, 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 of uh, bells and, and, and gongs. <clears throat> Instruments that are really easy to play. Essentially, it's just really about subtlety and, and listening. And, uh, you know, I find great delight in, in bringing these types of experiences to people. You know, as it, it, I'm sitting in quarantine and I'm thinking about, you know, like how evolve um Let's say this, I moved into my parents' house in, in, in March, and now both my brother and my mother play the gong. You know, they didn't play the gong before I got here, and, and now they play the gong. Um, I think that we're going to see, you know, sound healing. If, if, we're, if we're stuck inside in the U.S. for a long time, <laughs> so, you know, like this is a period where, like, you know, everybody's going to be changing in the world. You know, some people are out doing sessions already. You know, some people are not going to be able to do sessions for a really long time. Uh, I think that it's it's going to go much more towards the family. Uh, I think it's going to go much more towards, you know, close circles of friends getting together. Uh, I see it as becoming, like, more of a, a folk music again. And, uh, and I think that's interesting. Um, you know, for myself, I want to be able to blend together a lot of different timbres and, and, and different sounds um, and just see, you know, what, what, what can happen. <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that, like, you, you know, music, playing music really comes back into the home. You know, that, that, that's something that I'm very interested in is, you know, creating a space for that where, where it doesn't necessarily have to be about, um, you know, concerts or show or, or, or anything, but really just playing. Uh, and, and for myself, that's, I, I think, where I'm at right now, you know, in quarantine. I've been, uh, you know, talking to you guys on Dig Deeper, and, and I've been playing, and I've been practicing, and I've been trying new things, and, and, and uh, and imagining, you know, what sound goes with this. And then, you know, looking on eBay and, and looking on, you know, different percussion bazaars and, and saying, you know, do I have a use for this? And uh, I feel like I'm kind of building a collection for a future time as well uh, so that, you know, people can come together and play these instruments that I've collected. Uh, I don't, hopefully that answered your question in terms of where I'm at evolution-wise. Yeah, definitely. And once again, you left me with lots of things I would like to discuss further. Um, I really, it's interesting 
how many parallels I experience hearing you talk about your life and your perspectives and your evolution. And then how many I hear when I hear Mitch talk about his, but they're different. And it's, it's really interesting. You both really, really strongly reflect my own life, but totally different sort of parts of it. And perhaps it works the same way, such that perhaps you find some reflection in me. And perhaps that's why the three of us have managed to um, work together so well, creating some really interesting projects that we're going to talk about in a minute. But <clears throat> I really appreciate what you're talking about going beyond traditions. I had a really interesting experience. I went to, I was in India for, I don't know, two and a half months. And I was taking tabla lessons with this tabla master every day. And um, I would sometimes, well, he saw me just start kind of playing the tabla the just not knowing how to play playing the way I would play if somebody just handed it to me at a drum circle and said hey play something awesome on this and I've been playing drums my whole life so I can I can play a tabletop a cup a piece of paper I can play anything a walnut whatever and but you know I don't I didn't know anything about how you're supposed to play tabla and I played it you know sort of my own way and then he saw me do that and he got all his friends and he had people, he'd have people come the next day. Every, every time I'd see him, he would try to bring more people to come see how I played the tabla because he was just so, like, he wanted everybody to see that. Like, whoa, look how this guy plays tabla. I've never seen anything like this. And he would, yeah, constantly bring these crowds of people to watch me play. And I was there to learn how to play it because I had no idea how to play it at all. And I would try to get him to teach me, you know, let's learn, let's teach me how to play tabla the way you're supposed to, like the way you play it, for example. And, and we would do some of that. And then he would finally kind of his enthusiasm would overwhelm him and be like, he'd be like, we're done with that. You play it your way. And and let's jam. And he would, you know, get on another instrument or something. He just wanted to jam with me the way I played tabla wrong. And so that really reminds me a little bit about what you're talking about, the, you know, going beyond traditions and playing instruments new ways. And it's kind of an interesting sort of other side of what Mitch was talking about, because he was talking about kind of the other side of sometimes it's absolutely crucial to respect a tradition ex with extreme care. And then there's other times where breaking the tr tradition is the right thing to do. And that's an interesting sort of dance between those two ends of the spectrum when we're dealing with these magical instruments from around the world and from the far reaches of history. Um, yeah, the... You mentioned the gong rules, like don't do this, don't hit it in the middle of the gong, or don't do that. That's a really fascinating phenomenon, and I think it deserves a lot more discussion about don'ts. I grew up in a family where it was kind of what you were describing. I grew up in a house where people just played music together all the time. That's kind of how we hung out. If the family's hanging out, we're playing music. That's just hanging out equals playing music. And so I grew up where, you know, 
drunk person X will pick up whatever and just start playing it however they feel like. So I definitely grew up in a, or a little kid Y, you know, a little kid or a drunk person doesn't know how to play the instrument, but they're allowed to because, you know, you know, they're hitting the pots and pans. There's a lot of pot and pan playing in my house, <clears throat> jam sessions when, when there's not enough cowbells to go around, <laughs> the kitchen turns into cowbell central. Um, I like your image of cracking open the listener's concept of what music can be. I feel like that is just like a beautiful image that uh, I'm not going to say any more about that, but I just wanted to repeat it. And then again, talking about the future of sound healing and uh, kind of moving into the family home, into the house, um, into the family and sort of evolving into a form of folk music, something people get together and do. I really am interested in that uh, image of it because I grew up, once again, as I said, in a, a musical family where you'd call what we did folk music, essentially, even though it was very rock-centric. Um, it was essentially folk music. And um, thinking of sort of sound-healing kinds of music, the stuff that people call sound-healing music, like playing singing bowls and gongs and you know meditative sorts of music, um, conceiving that, as a sort of folk music in the home. I find that really fascinating. And definitely right now we're essentially forced into that other than of course, sharing it through these, uh, you know, through the internet with each other and recordings. So interesting to think about where all that's going. Really appreciate what you were sharing with us. Um, I now want to turn our attention to some exciting projects that the three of us are working on together. One of them is called Dig Deeper. That's kind of the overarching name. And then this series of courses or shows or whatever you want to call it, um, is uh, this series is called Ex um, Dig Deeper Exploring Sonic Wisdom. And we have just yesterday started our fourth season each season consisting of 12 episodes uh, each being three hours long that happen three days a week so essentially on monday on wednesday friday and saturday we have an online episode meeting show video podcast whatever you want to call it and then people uh, participate live in them, and also people just get the videos after the fact. And the overarching name of it's Dig Deeper. And then the other project that we're in the midst of working on <clears throat> together is the 2020 Gong Summit. All three of us were a part of last year's Gong Summit, which took place up in the Northeast U.S. were in person, and this year, due to this uh, quarantine kinds of restrictions, we're actually going to do it online, and that's going to take place August 1st and 2nd, uh, immediately following the Dig Deeper Season 4. So I'd actually just like to ask Mitch to talk about the Gong Summit 
and what that, where that came from. You're, you're the, the originator of this, of that. So I figure it's most appropriate for you to tell us about it. Uh, yeah, the Gong Summit came, sort of came together the year before last, and it actually came about uh, when uh, Mike and I were talking about uh, uh, gong culture in, in, in general. And, um, and we were talking about how this was a great opportunity to, you know, discover our history, to uh, get an idea of, you know, where, where we've been, where we're going, what is our lineages, um, and these kind of things to get a better understand and to better understand the culture overall. I mean, gong culture is made up of uh, people in meditation, people in yoga, people in performance. Um, uh, people are just using it for their own personal transformation. I mean, it's in, people are using it far and wide, uh, gong sales all over the world. I mean, there are all these companies that make them, they're back ordered, so they are quite popular at this time in history. And we figured before the train or the horse left the barn in all this excitement, maybe now would be a good time to reflect upon where we were in the present try to look back to get a better understanding of where we came from and to basically lay out a guardrails, you know, for the future, just to keep it from like running off the, running off the track, so to speak, you know, not, you know, telling people what to do with it, but just saying, you know, just try to be the best with it. You know, think about quality when you, you know, when you engage that 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 interest and uh it, it, you know it, 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 at the time my wife michelle was overhearing us talking about it at dinner and while we were sleeping she sent an email out and uh the next thing you know we had enough financial backing to put the idea into motion and then the strength of the community uh was able to uh, pull it all together where we didn't have to seek other any other kind of funding or ask the person that had given us the seed money kind of a thing, okay, so for more money. So that was sort of how it came about. But what's fascinating about this year's one, Thomas, and is that we, <coughs> we had <coughs> a uh, – um, a few little glitches in the Gong Summit where uh, people were either denied a visa to get to the United States on the very day they were supposed to get on the airplane, or um, <laughs> it was somebody's 70th birthday and didn't tell them about a surprise birthday party for them <laughs> until like they were going out the door to come to the Gong Summit. And they said, well, where are you going? And they said, well, I'm going to the Gong Summit. And they said, oh, no, you're not. There's a surprise party for you. We're going in the opposite direction. And he was like, what are you talking about? I'm going to the Gong Summit. And they said, no, we've got like, you know, 50 people waiting for you at a hotel somewhere. And so he was like, what the heck? And then one of the other persons, uh, we sent the ride to pick him up. And, uh, and he confused the date. And he thought it was the following weekend, and he didn't have 
anybody to watch his dog and a few other things. And he is up in years. He's in his 80s. And uh, he, uh, this was just a little too much for him to get together. I think if I would have had the phone call, I would have said, we'll just bring the dog. But anyway, um, these three people did not make the original Gong Summit. They are, uh, and also, uh, uh, I mean, and also uh, Christopher Tree, who was, um, who was, uh, he's, his physical health is, he can't do a long a flight anymore he can't fly and um so on this gong summit we were going to have christopher tree who was the, who's the the male patriarch in the lineage of contemporary gong playing in america that's christopher tree 1952 and then frank andrews who was the disciple and assistant of nesta karen crane 1928 she started on gongs in California, ended up in a temple in New York. She had her own philosophical temple called the Temple of the New Dawn. And Frank was a disciple of Nesta. And uh, so w we only can find out about Nesta through Frank. Is one, you know, there's an obscure record album out called The Magic of the Gongs. Um, but, you know... Contemporary gong playing started in North America with Nesta Karen Crane in 1928. That's the fact. It wasn't started by anybody else. She was the first female, and she actually had other women who, who she trained and played gongs too. Okay, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a Doris, uh, Rose. Uh, there's 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 others. Uh, there's um, uh, many. Um, anyway, that were, that were performing on the gongs with her up until around the 1970-71. Um, so between 1928 and 1971, she had a lot of people she was playing the gong with. So anyway, we're going to be talking with Frank. We got Frank in, and we have Val Bertoya in. And Val is the son of Harry, who, whose musical definition is summarized as son ambient. He was the first American gong maker uh right after zildjian was spitting out gongs in their uh, for two years out of their brockton massachusetts plant with their symbols and everything else zildjian made a gong but harry was an independent artist a lot like you know the ones we see now in ryan shelley and sean aceto and grata sonora and jim dobble who we had in at the gong summit and we're going to have again once again involved in this gong summit I mean, we actually have more people in more people in the online Gong Summit than we may have actually had on location because only a, a very small handful of people at the last minute, you can count them on one hand, didn't make it to the Gong Summit. But I think anybody who's into Gongs needs to be introduced to the work of Christopher Tree. Uh, they should know about Nesta Karen Crane. They should have a better understanding of Sun Ambient from from harry batoya so we're going to have that in there so i think that's sort of a it, it's going to be a lot of fun there's going to be a lot of information in there i mean for the people that were at the gong summit they know that it was almost overwhelming it went on almost all day and night 
I mean, there was only a couple hours where it was actually quiet at the retreat center because gongs were hanging everywhere. Everywhere you looked, there were gongs and then there were drum circles. And I mean, people didn't want the energy to stop because they were having so much fun. It was actually the first time I would actually classify a conference as almost a rave, <laughs> a gong rave. Because, I mean, all you heard was gongs, uh, you know, but I mean, there were moments where people put them down and listened with complete attention to the research that actually got presented. Uh, we had research. We had all kinds of stuff. I mean, this was, everybody said it went over the board. And, and all I can say is if we only capture a fraction of it, on online, it will still be unforgettable for the people that joined us online. Don't you think, Thomas? You were there. I agree. I, um, I'm, I'm super excited. I was in the peculiar position of being the moderator of the Gong Summit. And so I was present and active in almost every moment of every part of it and got to really see it kind of from a special chair. And yeah, it was a tremendously magical, life-changing sort of experience. And it definitely engendered a, an international community of people that have really, really strong, beautiful love and respect for one another. And I think that this uh, online Gong Summit's gonna be a beautiful sort of I, I think of it as almost like a kind of a step between last year's Gong Summit and next year's Gong Summit, sort of a, a, a meeting point where while we're all somewhat trapped at home, we get to actually come together. And I think there'll actually be some advantages in the online format. That's been something really surprising to me that we've learned through the Dig Deeper series is there's actually some advantages to having people be able to be together while they're still in the safety of their own home and um, be, be able to be a part of something not exactly at the same time that everyone else is because they are on a different schedule and all, all kinds of interesting little features. I learned that teaching online classes that a lot of things people learn better in my online sort of virtual formats because they're like didgeridoo lessons. A lot of people do better with didgeridoo lessons through something like this, like a, like Zoom or through Skype, because they're all alone. They're in their own house. They feel safe. They can kind of step off the camera. And when they're in the vulnerable state of going into a tube, uh, it's actually for a lot of people makes it a lot easier. But yeah, that Gong Summit is August 1st and 2nd. And at the end of this, and also in the description of this episode, we'll have links and such how to get tickets. I want to now ask Mike to tell us uh, a little bit about the Dig Deeper series that we are just now in season four, and we already have season five planned. And uh, yeah, interested to hear what he has to say about Dig Deeper. Uh, we gonna. In a lot of ways, uh, dig deeper for me is, is, is a dream come true. Uh, I had tried to do an online course a few years ago that I, I pre was pre-recording and 
So I was listening back, you know, I realized that, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to share about the, the science of sound, but I realized I wasn't a physicist. And, uh, and I wanted to share, you know, a lot about the history of, of, of the gong, but I realized, you know, I wasn't really a historian. And, uh, and it's funny because, you know, the, the two of you would just like pop in my head sometimes as, as I was listening to this. And I'd be like, well, what would Mitch think about this? Or what would Thomas think about this? And uh, so, so, you know, from my perspective, it's kind of a, a dream come true because uh, there's such a, a wide level of, of experience and, and exploration and, and understanding. Um, you know, each of us has, has really lived music uh, where, where it's, you know, had an impact on our, our life philosophy. Uh, you know, each of us are teachers. Um, you know, each of us have really, you know, dedicated a lot of our lives, you know, to music. And, and I feel like together, um, you know, we, we create something that, you know, none of us could do on our own. You know, and just in terms of like where it could take somebody's mind in a period of three hours. I mean, I can't believe, you know, so, some of the, the classes that we've had. I mean, I can't believe where my, my mind has gone listening to Thomas and listening to Mitch uh, and, and then having to, you know, talk afterwards. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really been a phenomenal experience. Um, I think it's taking a really wide view of culture. Um, I think it's wonderful that, you know, we don't always even have to agree that we, we come from like different angles. And, and I think right now uh, something that I was seeing happen in a lot of, um, the sound healing culture was that uh, it's kind of becoming like homogenized or something like, you know, this is, and, and it was mostly like based on strange information, you know, just in terms of what, what people were thinking was important. Like I, like what, what I, I think is really beautiful is like, it, we can all agree that like something powerful was happening when we listen to music. And, and, and I think that like a lot of time, like the why or, or the reasoning that people were, were putting behind it, um, you know, was maybe what was a little bit shaky. And, uh, you know, I don't claim to know everything. I'm still, you know, definitely learning. And, and I, I, I definitely have had shaky information that I got from somebody else in the past. Um, but, it, but I think that we're able to uh, really teach about sound and really teach about music and, uh, and teach about history and, and, and teach about passion and love and, and dedication. Um, and, and hopefully just, you know, I think we're all really promoting a creative and inquisitive spirit. Uh, and, and, and I'm really grateful to be a part of that. Um, so, I mean, I've learned a lot. And, and, and I think that it's also an opportunity to, you know, bridge some gaps uh, you know, with what's happening in sound healing and sound therapy and, 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 and also reconnecting it back to music. Um, this is almost like it, it, for some reason, just like hopped out. Like it was like, oh, okay, there's like this trail of, of music happening. And then suddenly here's this other thing. It's still music, but we're calling it something else. That to me, I think didn't really need to happen. Uh, I mean, I think there does need to be a distinction that sound can have a therapeutic value. And I think that, you know, definitely, um, 
you know, you're still listening to music. It's just the context is different. So, you know, it's creating a, uh, a space for people to understand, you know, like the set and setting behind what they're doing. Is this a meditative experience? Is this like a one-on-one -on -one therapy experience? Is this like a concert for a group of people? Um, so I, I think that it's important because like a lot of non-musicians are attracted to, to sound healing and, and there's like kind of this sense of lack that a lot of them have because they haven't learned you know, how to put together melody or they haven't learned how to put together chords or anything like that. And I think we're really offering something beyond that, you know, like we're kind of saying that, you know, like it's okay. Like, you know, we, we were presenting, uh, you know, ideas around music concrete and acousmatic theory um, in some of the episodes. And, and so we're giving this like precedent for, you know, people just discovering how to make new music, you know, and, and, and I think that's really fantastic. And, and what I'm looking forward to is, um, you know, as people integrate this and make it all their own, what kind of music is created and, and how approaches change and, uh, and, and, and what happens when people let go of a lot of, you know, protocols. Uh, not to say that protocols aren't, um, you know, sometimes important, um, but, but I think that there can sometimes be a, a weight and, and a fear that is put on people that they can't necessarily go beyond the protocol. And, and, and I, I think that that makes us sometimes less human because it's like somebody is coming to you for, you know, a problem and you're treating them the same way that you just treated the last 40 people and thinking it's going to be the same. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's like, we're, I think we're trying to create a flexibility for people that it's like they can just meet whoever's in front of them and talk to them and be with them and, you know, be able to treat them accordingly and to be able to create a music in that moment to, you know, really work with the person. And uh, at least that's, that's what I'm hoping for. You know, I really want to create like a flexible musician. Uh, I want to create a musician that doesn't have, you know, fears and hangups. Uh, I, I, I want there to be, you know, music that's created for people that like really care about each other. You know, I think that's what sound healing is. It's like you're playing music in a way where you're like adding, you know, the special gift of like really caring. And, and uh, you know, so it's a different way of approaching listening, a different way of approaching the listener. And a lot of times this is already happening for people. You know, I, I think that we're, we're, we're maybe like giving a wide enough view that people are sometimes just going like, oh yeah, I already knew that. I just didn't understand some of the particulars. Uh, so I know that's what dig deeper is for me and, and, uh, but it keeps changing because <laughs> we keep digging. And so it's like, you know, the first series, I thought it was one thing. <laughs> and then season two, I was like, Oh wait, this is something else. <laughs> and then after season three, like when we got the sound working, I was like, Oh, this is even something else now. So, you know, it's, it's something that is, has continued to evolve and, uh, and I think that just goes you know, towards how the three of us can interact together and how we can play off of each other. And, and because the course is improvised, you know, it's like we're improvising together. And, 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 and uh, 
And a lot of times it's almost like music, you know, like where does something take place in the structure of the conversation? You know, like where are we leading the mind? Uh, you know, there's a real musicality to listening to the two of you. And, and, uh, and that's really like an honor, you know, to try to figure out like, well, where does it fit in? And, and uh, it's almost like a song, you know, am I, am I going to keep taking it in the direction that the song is going? Or am I going to, you know, is this, this part going to go somewhere completely different? You know, is it like the right of string, the right of spring by Stravinsky? <laughs> I feel like that's kind of <laughs> where we're at, you know? Uh, so yeah, I want to hear what you think about it. Yeah, that was a, a really beautiful description of Dig Deeper. Um, I really liked what you just said about, not necessarily about Dig Deeper, but about sound healing, that sound healing is playing music for people and adding the special gift of caring about them. I think that's a really beautiful way of saying it. Um, yeah, I think you really described the Dig Deeper experience quite well in a way that really fits how I look at it. I want to clarify for listeners uh, that aren't familiar, kind of a little bit more sort of logistics. Dig Deeper, It's uh, there's a website uh, that's digdeepersound.com. It's D-I-G. D-E-E-P-E-R-S-O-U-N-D, just digdeepersound.com. And the, the series is divided into seasons, season one, season two, season three, season four that we are in the middle of. And each season is composed of 12 episodes. Each are three hour long videos where we explore a great variety of topics around sound. And you'll find on the website a lot of the topics listed uh, per episode. So you can pick the episodes by a particular topic. And it's not progressive such that you don't need to have been in previous episodes. You don't need to have seen previous episodes in order to understand the current episode. Each episode is a standalone, although they all fit together into a really, really incredible whole that blows our minds. None of us expected it to be such a comprehensive, exploratory education. But I honestly believe, and this isn't something I would say lightly, I honestly believe that someone who watched all the episodes and paid attention to them, followed the links, followed the concepts, didn't and paid really close attention that they would have received a genuinely well-rounded and deep education that that it actually constitutes a school. Um, even though, of course, someone can watch the episodes and not really learn what we're talking about. As far as I can tell, the people that participate genuinely are learning and are getting a, a really broad education around sound. And not just around sound healing, but around sound in so many different ways. And the reports we're getting back from the participants uh, are tremendously supportive of what I just said. 
people's lives are changing. They're, they're awakening to uh, new possibilities. Their career paths are changing. Their whole philosophies of sound and sound, their sound work are changing drastically and in really, really positive ways. I can't possibly say enough about what an amazing uh, experience this is. And each episode is totally different than other episodes. So if you watch one episode, don't think that you have some idea of what this is all about. Because you need to really watch a few of them to get the, the idea. And episodes can be, you buy tickets for them and you can participate live and you also get access to the videos. And so you can do it after the fact, you can do it time of, you can get tickets by the episode, by the week, or by the season. And then also with, so we're in the midst of Dig Deeper Season 4. I don't know when this podcast will actually go online, but as of now, uh, we just finished our first episode and the second episode is tomorrow. And uh, immediately following this will be the Gong Summit, August 1st and 2nd. And then immediately following Gong Summit will be Dig Deeper Season 5. And so on the website, digdeepersound.com, you can get tickets to any of the seasons of Dig Deeper and any of the episodes, any of the weeks. And you can also get tickets for the Gong Summit. And you can also get combo tickets so that you get a ticket You get access to uh, one of the seasons uh, of Dig Deeper and the Gong Summit together. And if you're interested in sound, if you're interested in broadening your knowledge of sound, if you're interested in digging deeper and uh, getting a really deep and broad education about sound and a lot of relationships to its therapeutic uses, I strongly recommend checking out the Dig Deeper series and definitely recommend attending the Gong Summit or watching the videos after the fact because it just like Dig Deeper it will it's a virtual summit so you if you can't actually be there time of you can you know watch it in your own time so really really appreciate Mitch and Mike joining me this morning um, thank you Mitch uh, you're welcome, uh, Thomas. I can say, can I just add one thing on the yeah, please, if you have anything else you'd like to well, add, this is the time. It's almost like a college-level program in some regards. And it is also the people that have gone through this with us, they have a manual. I mean, if they've been writing, <laughs> writing this down and and follow me, like you said, our links and our book recommendations and then discussions around certain topics, they're being left with a manual on this, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's in their own writing. It's in their own understanding. So anyway, that's all I just wanted to add, but it's been great. Thank you, Thomas. I agree 100%. It's a university-level uh Maybe even better than university level, honestly. Uh, 
it's a lot of people refer to it as a wisdom school or a mystery school, and that is no uh, no exaggeration. And uh, thank you, Mike, for joining us. Anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you, Thomas. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking more in, in the course and, and uh, you know, just being with you guys is such a blast. So I'm appreciative to always be in conversation. Yay. So we are wrapping up this episode of the podcast, The Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson. Once again, our guests were Mitch Nur and Mike Tamburo. Recording, uh, I am actually in my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, and they are in their respective locations, somewhere both, I think, in Pennsylvania at this moment. And it's a treat to come back to this podcast series, and it's a special treat to have these extraordinary, inspiring guests who are also very dear friends. Thank you for joining us on the art and science of sound healing. Until next time, be blessed and be well. Thank you.